So in this part, we're going to be looking at the, you know, Jesus Christ, who is he, as far as uh, uh, Jesus the divine, Jesus the human. Um, and really, what it comes down to is, you know, I mean, that's the question. Divine or not divine, that is the question, right? To be or not to be. You know, the fact that Jesus is both God and man uh, uh, is clearly portrayed in Scripture, and to deny it, one would have to completely disregard basic Bible interpretation, or what is called hermeneutics. Um, but there are still many who do so. Uh, it's not difficult to see that Christ uh, see Christ as a man, but to believe that he is fully divine would mean believing he possessed all of the attributes ascribed to the Father, right? Uh, including eternality, self-existence, omnipotence, omniscience, and a host of others. The biblical teaching of the soul dictates that a man comes into being at his formation or conception and not before. You see that in Genesis 2, verse 7, where God formed man out of the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You see in Ecclesiastes 3, 11, um, that he created eternity within their hearts. Okay, So as soon as the heart stopped beating, or you should say conception, um, there you now have this, this being who will ask for eternity. Uh, for Jesus to be the Son of God that is divine, he would have to exist prior to this birth, right? So uh, what do we mean then by pre-existence? Because if he's God, he had to exist prior to becoming man, right? I mean, by definition. So the meaning of pre-existence is that the Son of God existed before creation and before time. And we'll be going through some other scriptures that uh, support that. Um, the Son of God existed before his birth. And the Son of God has existed eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, can you think of any group that calls themselves a Christian who would differ with that? And how? Anybody? What group can you think of that would differ with what we just said there? That uh, Jesus existed eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, I mean, you go on. I mean, it's, you got to remember with the, the idea of Mormon, you know, where, where they, you know, have the same words but use a different dictionary. What you have to understand is that God is just an exalted man. Okay, God, the Father God, right? At one time, he was a man just like, you know, just like I am. And he was some, you know, I don't know their whole process of theology, but somehow exalted and now is divine, but he's still physical. Well, he at one point in time had a father. And that father had a father. And that ad infinitum, right? And so when you talk to him, uh, of course, they believe Jesus is God because he comes from the father. They believe that the Holy Spirit is just another personage or God. Um, when you ask a Mormon, do you believe in the Trinity? What do you think they're going to say? Yeah. Absolutely we do. Of course we do. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course we do. All right. Now, ask him how many gods that is. What do you think they're going to say? Yeah. Actually, what they're doing now when they go to our door, the, the, the first response, I mean, you have to really work to pin them down. Now they say, well, you know, the nature of God is really, you know, it's not meant for us to know, at least in this law, or, you know, something like that, where it's just almost like a, almost like a Rob Bell you know, just kind of softening it and trying to skirt around what they're, real, what they're really trying to say, you know. So, 
but there must be uh, evidence for pre-existence, and we see that, you know, he's got his heavenly origin, and that is that he, he must have existed prior to his birth, and you see that in John 3.13, 31, John 17.5, in fact, John 17.5, John 17 is the high, and we normally call the uh, Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, right? Well, that's just where he taught us how to pray. The real Lord's Prayer is in John 17 when he actually prays, okay? And in uh, John 17, 5, is where he, he asked the Father, you know, give me the glory I had with you before the world was, right? And so he's testifying there of his own heavenly origin. You also see that in Micah 5, 2. And that's a messianic passage in, in the book of Micah. And it talks about the Messiah as having his origin from eternity. Pretty cool. You know, it's like all these... You know, I, I guess you could say part of it's hardness of heart and some other things. I mean, all these little, you go through the Old Testament, you see signs like that, what you see in Micah, you know. And it's like, how could they miss it? You know, how could they, when Jesus showed up, how could they possibly miss it? But um, I have an answer for that, but that's another, another discussion. Uh, creation of the universe, to create the universe, you must exist before creation. Kind of goes with that law of cause and effect, right? Um, or actually, you should say uh, the law of, uh, non-contradiction. You know, you, cause you can't create yourself. The universe can't, couldn't have created itself because to create yourself, you'd have to exist before what? Before you existed, right? <laughs> Just doesn't work. But somehow, when Carl Sagan said it back in the 70s and 80s, and he'd say, "The universe created itself," that sounds pretty cool. You're sitting back in a chair, especially if you're smoking something, and you're saying, "Wow, how profound!" Until you step back a little bit and say, "Okay." So wouldn't I have to exist before I exist? So easy, I don't know. Something about professors, when they get up in the, or you know, people like that, they get up to a microphone or a pulpit or whatever, and they, you know, they use that certain tone of voice that somehow that's more authoritative and accurate or whatever. All right, uh, his relationship with God. Um, you see that he claimed equality of nature with God in John 10.30. He claimed equal glory with the Father before the world began. We already touched on John 17.5. Paul also claimed Christ had the same nature as God, Philippians 2.6. These passages are evidences for eternality as well, and you can read through those in your, at, at your leisure. Um, you see Christ's attributes. He claimed full deity and others attested to it. And we'll, we'll see more of this a little bit, uh, but for now, Colossians 2, 8, 9 uh, will suffice. Uh, that's where Christ dwells in the uh, Christ is the fullness. fullness of Godhead in bodily form. Okay. Um, you also see in his relation to John the Baptist. Um, it's interesting. You, do you recall how yeah, you're like going? What? How can John the Baptist have something to do with his pre-existence? John said something. Do you remember? I mean, how, how much older? Do you do you even know how much older John the Baptist was than Jesus? He's kind of like a related cousin. Six About six months, right? But John said that uh, Jesus existed before me. Well, wait a minute. If you know, if he existed before me, and I'm born six months before, then obviously even John knew that this Messiah was from eternity. Okay, who has goings forth from eternity, as Micah five two says. Um, now, why does it matter? Why does it matter that this this Christ exists? Uh, or pre-exist. Well, if the Son of God came into existence at his birth, then there is no Trinity. Okay? Because um, by definition, God has no beginning. Uh, it is interesting to note that the Mormons believe in pre-existence of the human soul. They believe in spirit babies that become people on the earth eventually. Okay? 
being populated, I'm guessing, by Father God, uh, but it depends on who you listen to. If you listen to Joseph Smith, it's one way. If you listen to Brigham Young, it's another way. Brigham Young said that Adam is our God. I mean, because you know, Adam inherited this planet, and he had offspring, and therefore Adam is our God, with whom we must, with whom we have to do, as, as Brigham Young said it. And in their uh, theology today, as long as you're sealed in the temple after being married, when you die, and if your wife's been faithful and a good Mormon wife, and you resurrect, have her resurrected from the dead, and the two of you get to blast off to some corner of the universe and start your own planet with people. Hell no. Mitt Romney doesn't tell you that kind of stuff when he's up there on the podium, right? <laughs> Vote for me, and I'll, I want my own planet, and I'm going to have my own spirit babies, and, you know, that would be a real short uh, campaign. Um, I'm not making campaign who should be president. I'm just, just saying, just saying. Um, if the Son of God were not preexistent, then he could not be God, because by definition, God is eternal and self-existent. Um, now, there's a difference between self-created and self-existent. Before we talked about self-creation is impossible, right? I mean, it violates the law of non-contradiction. And, and we can talk afterwards about what, what the law of non-contradiction is, but you can't be and not be at the same time in the same way. Um, and, you know, where, where self-creation is impossible, self-existence is not. It just means he's always existed. Well, I can't disprove that, okay? Um, if the Son of God were not pre-existence, then he lied because he claimed to be self-existent, or excuse me, uh, that pre-existent in John 8, 58. Now, this is one, uh, sometimes, you know, some of the Jehovah's Witnesses have gotten real sharp on this, and they, they've been trade, they, they had to change the uh, translation here again. Um, but in John 8, 58, Jesus said, um, after talking to the Jews, and he said to them, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced. And they're like, uh, how old are you? You're not even 50 years old yet, and you're saying that Abraham saw your day? Now keep in mind, Abraham was 2,000 years before, right? So even 50 years, 100, 200 years wouldn't cut it. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, what? I am. I am. And of course, he's referring back to what? The burning bush, right? And who was talking to Moses in the burning bush? Angel of the Lord, but it was the Lord, right? Okay. And so, um, what the Jehovah's Witnesses changed it to say, uh, before Abraham was, I have been, or, you know, they change it to where you won't point back to the burning bush, okay? Um, but if that was the case, then why would the Jews care so much about what he said? Because what, what did the Jewish leaders do right after Jesus made that comment? He picked up stones. Yeah, and what is, what is, why would you stone somebody? What was the charge if you were going to be stoned, at least in that case? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Yeah. Exactly. So they knew exactly what he was claiming to be God. They knew exactly what he meant. And so if he lied about that and lied about his preexistence, then you have to ask the question, what else did he lie about? Uh, it was C.S. Lewis that said, you, you know, you have three options when it comes to um, Christ. He's either a liar, got caught in his lie, and, and they executed him for it. He was a lunatic, knowing that what he was saying was a lie, and did it anyway. Or he's what? Lord. Yeah. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Those are your only three options when it comes to Jesus. Now, the incarnation of Christ, and of course, that's like, 
well, what is incarnation? It's, you know, I think of that word, my first time I heard it, like, what is incarnation? Is it a flower? You know? Um, someone said, no, it's kind of like uh, chili con carne, right? Chili with meat, okay? In, you know, incarnation means he took on flesh, right? Um, I'm quoting here from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, the Son of God, the, Son, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, compo composition, or confusion. Fancy words, but it, what you're having to realize is that there were all kinds, just like there's false teachers today, all right? There have been false teachers going all the way back to the beginning. Um, I can't think of the name of the guy. Who was it who led Israel astray? It was a prophet, Balaam? No. I mean, going on, you go back and you find false teachers, you know, false prophets and so on. And the, uh, I mean, it seems like in every period of church history, you have some group, some sect, some something, where they take the truths that are displayed in the scriptures and they twist them around, right? And so what the uh, Westminster divines, and these be kind of coming out of the Reformation period uh, and later, um, they said, you know what, let's, let's get it down. Let's ask the question, who is the Son of God? And so that's how they responded. And, and if I don't have that in your, your booklet, we can, um, uh, I can get all those scripture references that go with it. So uh, what is the incarnation? It's simply God taking on human flesh or nature. Uh, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking on himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her yet without sin. It's interesting, there's actually some Christians who believe that Christ was born with a sinful nature. That there was some imperfection in him because it does say that he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, right? Um, but they say, well, because we don't think it could be a true temptation unless he was exactly like us and we have a sin nature, therefore Christ had a sin nature. I don't like that reason. That bothers me. Um, and of course it's not true but um, there are some who who take that view now why is it you know why is it so important that we identify these things about you know how Christ how the conception how all that why is it important to do that why do you think to know this stuff to know um, how Christ came into existence and, and look at that why, why would that be important Christ is the basis of your faith exactly you've got to know who you're dealing with and even Jesus said, unless you, like I said earlier, unless you believe that I am, you're lost in your sins. Okay. So um, what's interesting, and it's another question you could ask Mitt Romney, um, where did Jesus come from? Was it the Holy Spirit or God the Father? And that, you know, they're going to tell you is that, well, if you, if you pin him down, I'm sure quietly in a room with nobody else, he's going to have, if he believes, truly believes Mormon theology, He's going to say that, well, the father, an exalted man, came down and had sexual relations with Mary. And so you could say it was a virgin conception, but not a true virgin birth, right? Because she wouldn't have been a virgin anymore. So uh, that, that's, I mean, you, you're going to wind up in these odd 
twisted theologies if you don't stick with just the simple, simple teaching of the scriptures, right? Um, now, as far as incarnation, uh, the means of the incarnation was the virgin birth, or I should say virgin conception. Uh, the word, uh, or actually, I should say virgin birth. Um, the word virgin in Isaiah 7.14 means a young woman of marriageable age. It does not have to mean virgin. It typically does, but not always, uh, as we define it. But the Hebrew culture, it was expected that every unmarried woman be what? A virgin, right? So uh, now the Bible that Jesus used, the Old Testament that he used, was actually what's called the Septuagint. And if you have a study Bible, you'll see references to LXX in your Bible, which is 70, okay? Um, and that refers back to um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's why also when you see um, quotes of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then you compare those to your Bible now, sometimes it's just a little bit of a it's saying the same thing, but it's kind of different. And that's because the quotes in the New Testament are using the Greek translation of, uh, of the Old Testament. So, but in Greek, okay, and so when you look in Matthew 1 and Luke 1, the word used there for virgin is virgin. I mean, there is no other way to say it in Greek. It is, that's what it is. And so they understood that that's what was meant uh, by Isaiah in Isaiah 14. Now, are there any Old Testament references to the incarnation? Well... You have what's called the Proto-Evangelion, which is just the pre-gospel in Genesis 3.15. Do you remember what the Lord said to Eve? That uh, your seed, um, that, talking about the seed of the serpent, okay, the seed of man, that uh, the seed of the serpent will bruise your, his heel, but he shall bruise his head, right? And so there's kind of a veiled reference there, and, and Paul kind of picks up on that in Romans 16:20. Um, you have a veiled reference there to the gospel, um, and then also um, you see the Messiah in Isaiah 7:14, 9:67, Micah 5:2. No question that this was referring to a Messiah who is going to be man, but it also hints of his divinity. Okay? Now, what's the purpose of the incarnation? There's I listed nine there just real quickly, to reveal God to us, to redeem our soul, to redeem our body. Now, why, why would I make a difference there? Why would I distinguish those two? Well, what happens when you die? Where's, where do you go? Body's still in the ground, right, rotting. Your soul's going to heaven. But one day, what's going to happen? You're going to get a new body, which means all the elements and that old body that's rotting away is going to be changed. It's going to be resurrected, and it's going to be changed and, and met up with, a, with God's going to through that make a new body. And so there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a twofer, okay? You get two for the price of one, right? Um, but it was interesting, I, when I, I taught, uh, or I teach a class um, at our homeschool co-op uh, to high school students, and it's, it's called Defending Your Faith. I asked a question one semester. Um, I said, are any of you going to be resurrected? Like, is your dead body going to be resurrected out of the grave? They went, no. You know, and these are from Christian families, okay? And I was really surprised that they didn't know that. Um, so I just want to make sure you know that that body that you have is not going to stay in the grave. Read 1 Corinthians 15, you'll understand, okay? Um, but you're, you're going to get a new body and the soul and the body will once again be together.
Um, he came as a propitiation, an atonement for our sin, um, established the eternal kingdom to be an example to follow, to destroy the works of the devil, to fulfill prophecy, and fulfill the law. You know, Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And it's actually his obedience to the Father through the law is where we get our righteousness, okay, in, it, imputed to us. And you can go through the book of Romans and look at the different imputations. Um, but he fulfilled the law on our behalf, and that's how the Father looks at us, as though we're one who's already obeyed the law. And then, of course, there's those who deny. We already talked about the Mormons, uh, a group called the Docetists. That, um, and there's a uh, chart. I don't know if your chart's included in what you have, um, but I can get one for you. But there's a chart that shows the various false teachings that have taken place over uh, history. Um, there's actually one from the 4th century called the Arians, and all that is is today's Jehovah's Witness. Okay, not Arians in the German sense, but um, anyhow. Now, the deity of Christ, there's no question the Bible teaches the deity of Christ. In fact, to deny the deity of Christ is not only to deny the Bible, but also to deny the very nature of Christ himself. Um, now, let's look at the Old Testament references. You see in Genesis, let us make man in our image. Now, some will take that to say that he's referring to angels. Why do you think that might not work? <laughs> yeah. But if, if I was a skeptic, or not a skeptic, but I was just someone who believed that, you know, he must be talking to angels. How would, what from the text there would you see that, I might have already given it to you. <laughs> but, yeah. When you actually go through the creation part where God's actually uh, breathing in man's nostrils, Who's doing it? Who's forming the clay or the dirt? And who's breathing? It's God. It's not, you don't have uh, God's, okay, uh, Gabriel, grab the mud over there, put that together, or, you know, and I'll do the nostrils, but you take care of the arm, Michael. You know, you don't see that. You see God saying, let us make man in our image. You see God actually doing it. Um, you also see, bless you. Uh, sorry, mine was late. Um, you see God speaking to God in, in uh, Psalms. And again, take your time. Look up all these verses. You know, you can take this home with you. Um, and don't just take my word for it, but also just from a point of learning and study. Uh, look these up on your own time. You'll be blessed. Uh, I certainly was going through it and putting it, putting it together. Um, so you have, you know, God's, and you see uh, Jesus' comments on this. And I believe that's where he says, um, he asked the question, um, you know what? Let's just, I'll just look it up. Just talking about who, whose son is the Messiah, and of course they all say, "Well, it's David's son," you know. And then he says, "How can that be?" But we'll, Matthew twenty-two. And verse 41 says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, Who do you think the, uh, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees said, The son of David. And Jesus said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And of course, that's where you get the incarnation, because God... God and man. Um, and of course, <laughs> I love the next verse. And no one was dare able to answer him another word, you know, or didn't dare answer him another word. Um, and no one questioned him anymore. So, oh, incidentally, 
you see in verse 44, if you get your Bible open, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, how is the first Lord spelled? I mean, obviously L-O-R-D, it's spelled with capitals, right? Um, if you don't have a study Bible, you've never seen this before, when you see Lord or you see God in all capitals, that's the translator telling you that the word being used there, and you can either you can use W in place of H2. I think the Germans use the W, Yahweh, either way. Um, that's the name of God. And you're like, that's just a bunch of consonants. You know? Well, in Hebrew, that's the way it's written. Okay. Yeah. Essentially, I am or the becoming one, that's, that's what that is. And so when you see in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and there's some Psalms, and I think there's some other scriptures too, but especially in the Psalms where you see uh, the Lord God, and that's when it's usually what's, it's saying Adonai, L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase, Adonai, God, okay, well it's Lord, Lord, really, but it's, they're signaling to you that the G-O-D capitalizes also that. So you see Lord capitalized, or you see God capitalized, it's, that just, it's a signal to you, they're using this in that respect for the Jews, okay, because you wouldn't dare put that in writing, okay, in your Bible, um, and, you know, they, you, you, they just don't do that. They just put Lord or God and then reference that with the capitals. So keep that in mind when you read. Um, you also see in Isaiah 9, 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Of course, Jehovah's Witnesses will change that to a mighty God. And it's like, then you got another problem. What is it? You got more than one God. Okay. So um, you see, we've quoted a couple times, Micah 5, 2, eternality, the Messiah. And just one I threw in here, it was just something that came to mind. Um, you know, the angel of the Lord we see in the Old Testament where it actually says the angel of the Lord. And like every single time you, you come across this person, it always ends up being the Lord. <laughs> no, so I don't know why it is, you know, why the Lord uses it that way. But you, you no longer see that person after Jesus is here. You don't see the angel of the Lord in the New Testament. You might see an angel of the Lord, but not the definite article, the angel of the Lord. So, is that what they call a theophany? Yes, uh, and if if you're going to say it's Jesus, because you know if Jesus is the expressed image of the Father, you would call it more specifically a Christophany. Okay, but an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, when there's passages where you're not sure one way or the other, you would say a theophany, like when um, the Lord appeared to Abraham and two angels came with him before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or the promises of, of um, Isaac. Um, you know, you would say it's a theophany. Either way, uh, theophany, Christophany, um, either way, it's a representation of God in, 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 in flesh. Now, what about from the New Testament? What pointers do we have to show that Christ is divine from the New Testament? Well, there's a lot. Uh, of course, we know only God can forgive sins. Um, he's the eternal Logos. Actually, it's Logos, but most say Logos. Um, does anybody know John 1 1 memorized? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was, and the Word was God. Okay. Now, uh, what does that word, Word, mean? Okay. And what does that mean? I mean, because it's just translated from the Greek, because the, the word logos or logos in Greek, it can mean word, we can go to logic, we can go to lots of different things. It's an when idea. You, when you're thinking of the Greco-Roman mindset, it's, it's, an idea. it's an idea. An idea of what? We don't know. Ah, but we do. Okay. Yes. 
Um, and the mindset of the Greco-Roman, especially in the philosophers and the writings you find back in that time period, I mean, John was very careful to use that word, right. okay, to say he is the word. He is the logos, all right? In the Greco-Roman mindset, the logos, okay, and I'm talking about the philosophers and so on, the logos was the thought or reason behind all there is, okay? Uh, and essentially, and that's why he's saying it was God. Okay, it was God there at the beginning. God is the reason and rationale behind all that exists. He's the power that holds all things together. And you see that in, in Hebrews, right? Um, but the divine logos, that's God. I mean, the, the logos is God. It can, it's, it's a, you miss that, and that's one thing with, with translation, of course. You miss it, okay, unless you've got a study Bible. And I don't care if you're using the NIV study Bible, uh, Reformation study Bible, uh, whatever study Bible you have. You, it should have a reference there in John 1.1 that is showing that this, this special word, logos, means something a whole lot more than just word. Otherwise, when you read that, it's kind of like, oh, he's the word. Okay, that's cool. You know, what's it mean? It's, it's a lot bigger than what you see on print. Okay, keep that in mind. Um, uh, he's preexistent. We've talked on that. Uh, he's the eternally blessed God. You see in Romans 9. He's omniscient. I mean, um, think of, uh, it's when Nathaniel, when Nathaniel was called to be an apostle, and he came and Jesus said, look, a, a, a Jew within whom there's no guile. And he's like, uh, have we met? You know? And he's like, before you, Andrew even went and got you, uh, I saw you by the fig tree, right? Now you have to, and he went, you're the Christ, you know? <laughs> it makes you wonder what? What was he doing by the fig tree? You know, I don't know, but it makes you wonder. You know, if it was that, oh my gosh, you are the Lord. You know, um, so you have him knowing things that he couldn't possibly know as a, just a man. Uh, Hebrews one six, you find him worship. Now, of course, in the New World Translation of Jehovah's Witness, they change that to say uh, do obeisance unto. And they say, in other words, another word for giving um, uh, honor. Okay, not worship, but honor. Now, uh, the problem with that is I have a 1963 edition of the New World Translation. I also have a 1978 edition on my bookshelf, too. 1978 says, do obeisance unto. What do you think my 1963 edition says? Worship. The angels worshipped him. So that you see a continual progression of changes in... Uh, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses theology as well as their Bible. It's evolution. Yeah, it's the evolution. Yeah. There you go. There is evolution. Um, so you find him worshipped. You find him called Lord and God. You remember Doubting Thomas? Right? And he, he, I'm not going to believe unless he shows up and I put my hands in his scars and all that. And what do you know? Jesus shows up. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. My God. What do the Jehovah's Witnesses do with that? They say he cussed, he cursed and, and blasphemed, you know, because he's like, well, I, I shouldn't say blasphemed. They say he, he uh, my Lord and my God. That's what they do with him, okay? Um, and you also find a revelation, uh, oh, Godhead in bodily form in uh, Colossians 2, Alpha and Omega in Revelation, and there's some references if you get your study Bible. Look up there in, in, in Revelation to those passages on Alpha and Omega, first and the last, and you'll find some references. To, I don't have them written down. That's why I'm saying that. Um, to, I believe it's Isaiah, 
where Yahweh is said to be the first and the last. And if you're going to go from your uh, Septuagint version of the Bible, the Greek translation, it's not going to be first and the last. It's going to be Alpha and Omega. Okay. Um, let's take about a three-minute break uh, before we get into his humanity. Um, if you, have, you have to go, go. Otherwise, just get a drink of water. And if you have any questions regarding the deity of Christ, shoot. And if no one has to go anywhere, we'll start here in just a minute. Yeah. Son of man. Yes. That's used throughout the Bible. I spoke to somebody in Islam. They're like, well, that's used to refer to more than just Christ. Is that true? Um, son of man, you, you see it in the book of Daniel. Um, you see it... Uh, I think where else you see it, but it can refer to other another person. But it's a question of how is it being used, okay? Or what, and or what the son it, it is. What do, you, what do you mean? Like the meaning of son, um, or as far as son of man, be your relation probably one who relates to humanity. I, I'm not sure. I, I've, I've heard that question before, but I don't have an answer for you. But I will write that down and get back to you. In fact, before you all leave, on the check-in sheet, if you can put your email address, uh, that'd be awesome. I'll email you, you know, we can correspond, and Ken will have, I'll put his on there too. Let's, Ken, do you know offhand the, uh, I mean, I know I, I studied a long time ago, I just can't recall. Son, Son of Man. man. Uh, was used uh, both for uh, angels as well as for Good one.
you know, maybe maybe twelve thirty when we talked last, and he's like, "Hey, I should be there in about an hour." You know, um, if you want, just I mean, go to sleep and get up early and do it in the morning. That's fine too. I mean, I don't, I don't have to be there. I said, "No, no problem, whatever." And uh, and then it turned to taking longer than I'm. <laughs> and it's like, "Can you just leave the back door open? I'll put him inside the house." It's sure, fine. You know, so this morning I woke up and found half the syllabus by my back door. So. So I know he's tired. All right, we get God to dial across for me. I can go one hour of sleep on that. Hmm. That does raise the question, though. Did God die on the cross? That's a difficult question. It takes an awful lot of meandering through a bunch of theology. God Himself, as the eternal being, cannot die. Dying is a human trait. Okay, so in his humanity, you would say yes, uh, but in his divinity, you would have to say no. I mean, dying is a dying is a well is a curse upon creation, right? Yeah. And so, since God is not part of creation as far as in his divinity, it, it was God experiencing death in a sense and in the suffering as a man. Okay, but the actual divine nature dying, no, no way. So begs the question then, God can separate himself from himself. So when Jesus died, my God, my God, my God, God forsaken me. That was the, the humanity to no longer have a communion with God. Um, let me draw something for you. Unfortunately, I don't have a eraser. You have a napkin left, paper towel? Left, towel? Excellent. It's supposed to be a dry erase board, so hopefully this dry cloth will actually take it off. And I'm not trying to avoid your question. It's just a deep, actually a deep question. Well, uh, first question drove that one. All right. That line represents, and I'm talking about the thickness of the line, okay, as far as how well we understand both natures, okay, of Christ. Because he, he's, if he's fully God, fully man, he's got a fully divine nature, a fully human nature, but he's one person, okay? If you, let's say here, you put, let's say man, God, if you deviate even a hair from either side of that line, pick your heresy. Okay? You see what I'm saying? So it's almost like there, there's some theories, and we'll go over some of them, but that's why, like the, we quote from the Westminster Confession, very God, very man, you know, just trying to say, it's almost like defining him without, it's like saying what he's not. Okay? He's not just a man. He's not just God. He's God and man, but you can't mix the natures. And so I would argue that if you, it, when, when Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me, and they sat on his lap, and he, you know, and he's, you know, the children were, for such is the kingdom of God, when they touched his hand, when they touched the skin, were they touching God? Think about that, you know. I mean, Jesus told us that God is what? 
spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So is the flesh itself divine? I'll let you think about that. We'll talk more after class about that one. So, like I said, though, I mean, you fall too much this way, you're in that heresy. You, 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 find, you wind up in the, uh, like, Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, okay? You go on this side, you wind up, like, in the Gnostics, who denied his, that he was really a man. So if he wasn't really a man, did he really suffer? I mean, you wind up in, in, the, in the wrong camp, let's put it that way. And so we got to stay right there, okay? So... Um, you would not think of today, but inside and outside of the early church, people struggle with the idea that God could actually take on human form and nature. The Gnostics in the first century denied that Christ came in the flesh and that he only appeared as human. And the Greco-Roman world had no problem with the concept of a man being or becoming God. Okay, because you had the demigods and uh, you've seen any of the modern movies today. Um, I'm trying to think of the one, Percy Jackson, you know, something like that, where you hit, he's just like the son of Poseidon you know, with a human mother and all that. And so they had no problem with that. Um, it was the opposite they could not grasp, okay? That is, they, you know, they saw the mortal world as inferior and evil, and, you know, no god would leave the perfect and come to the inferior. Just, in, just you know, and that's why when Jesus talked to them about, the, or Paul talked to the, the, you know, Mars Hill and, and other places about the resurrection, the Greeks were like, okay, what? You know, why do I want to be back in the physical world? Why does this physical body... We, no, 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 no. We don't want that. It's bad. It's bad. Okay? Um, and so the concept, they, they just couldn't imagine, you know, divine perfection becoming uh, human. Um, and so... Uh, so And so widespread was the Gnostic heresy, the Apostle John had to address it in 2 John 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Uh, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Okay, so you had false teachings, you know, leaning way over on this side or too far this way. Okay, um, very dangerous. A simple glance at the New Testament will show that Christ was indeed human. To say that he was not human or to say that he only appeared as human would force one to conclude that Jesus de deceived his followers willfully and to do so would disqualify him from God's service. Um, here's some of the evidence for his humanity and afterward I got scriptures that tied all these together. He was born, came from the womb of Mary, right? He grew both in stature and favor with God and men. Uh, he was baptized, he came up out of the water. Uh, he got tired. Remember the back of the ship during the storm? That's a great passage, by the way. Well, another time. Um, he got hungry. He ate food. He cried and mourned at Lazarus' death. Uh, he did not know something about the day he would return. Uh, he could bleed, sweat drops of blood, and he could die. Now, reconciling the human and divine natures, like I said, we're going to try to just stay right on that line. Uh, you know, though we, mo we may rest in our theology today, the early church didn't have it so easy, okay? Uh, for them, discussing the deity or humanity of Christ posed some really difficult problems. If Christ is God, how could he exist in a human body and later die? If he was fully human, how could God have anything to do with flesh? Uh, as with most issues, there are many who take opposing views. In order to define what would be believed in light of scripture and to defend against heresy, the church held synods, or councils, which would be official meetings, uh, with senior clergy from all over Christendom, and I'm referring to like the Western church and the Eastern churches, excuse me, 
and they develop creeds and confessions to recite and bring to reminder regularly what the Christian should know and support. Now, I don't know what your background is, if you grew up maybe Presbyterian or Catholic or anything else, but you probably at one point in time recited the, the Apostles' Creed, right? Uh, or one or, or another creed, uh, or the Nicene Creed. Um, but they came up with these creeds, and it wasn't just for you know, liturgy purposes, that that's how they'd run their church, that every Sunday we got to read through the Apostles' Creed, okay? I'm kind of sick of it, but we'll do it anyway, you know? They didn't do it for that purpose. They did it for the purpose of keeping fresh in their mind all the time what they believe, so that when something, you know, a false teaching would blow through right off the bat, they would know, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, okay? Um, so the, the, in the, during the... Uh, uh, the, when the Nicene Creed was being put together, what was under attack was the divinity of Christ. And so back in 325, the, all the different churches came together and they came up with a, a, a creedal statement that says, I believe in one God and Father, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And so you, I mean, that is a powerful statement to the divinity of Christ, okay? Um, now look, who for us men and for our salvation, and we can lump women in there too, he's not being divisive or anything like that, but for who us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of the Father, and shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And then it goes on, uh, testifying of the Holy Spirit, and, and basically the, the Trinitarian uh, viewpoint. And incidentally, you've probably heard this, it's not just there, but it's also in the Apostles' Creed, uh, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You got a problem with that? I believe in one holy Catholic church? Catholic means universal. Good point. Exactly. Uh, I remember I, we went to the Pres uh, a Presbyterian church for a number of years. And I remember the first time attending it and we read that, I was like, can I say this? You know, can I, can I, is it okay to say this? You know, not realizing what that, what that meant, just universal Western, Eastern, Northern, Southern, and so on. And then, I'm not going to read this here, but you see his humanity confirmed uh, throughout church history, and, and then also at the Council of Chalcedon 451, where uh, essentially his humanity was being addressed. Because, again, the camp went start moving too far this way, leaving out some of this, and so now they had to get do a little course correction 100 years later. Um, and then we get to where we are today. So... Um, now here's the question. One person, two people, one nature or two? What is he? Um, there's a couple uh, theories or uh, ideas to, that kind of try to help explain it. Um, I don't think that we'll fully understand the nature of our Lord until we're what? Face to face. And then we will know just as we are known, right? <coughs> But you have what's called the hypostatic union, uh, the church used by early church fathers like Athanasius, uh, to describe Christ as fully God and fully man, united in one person forever, 
but two natures, the God-man. Again, not two persons, but one person with two natures. Um, then you have what's called the kenosis theory, and this is an idea in the 19th century. It tries to explain the difficulties that come with reconciling the fact that Jesus had two real and distinct natures. Uh, it's the idea that he emptied himself of many of his privileges as God and did not relay all knowledge, power, and presence to his human nature. This uh, kenosis or emptying uh, attempts to explain why Jesus did not know when he would return. Remember, he was asked point blank in Matthew 24, you know, when are you going to come back? And he says, I don't know, that's for the Father to determine. Okay. Um, so you're like, well, wait a minute. If he's God, how can he not know something? Okay, what... That's, you'll probably find that. In fact, I know you'll find it. There's a book by Norman Geisler. We've been looking at Norman Geisler, and we've quoted him a couple times, more from an a apologetic standpoint. He's got a great book out there called uh, uh, Bible Difficulties. Okay? Bible Difficulties by Norman Geisler. And he'll take passages like that and uh, uh, go through them and come out with a conclusion that's, you know, you'll find logical and reasonable. Um, because that is a difficult passage, certainly, to, to understand what, how did he not know um, if he was God? And then you have to say, well, if he's emptying himself of the privileges, then maybe he didn't pass on some of that knowledge to his human nature and so on. And again, as I drew on the board, there's a fine line, the, you know, the necessity of not mixing or combining the natures, okay? You either deny or minimize his deity, or you exalt or dismiss his humanity. So we walk like this, we start discussing the nature of Christ. All we know for sure, without question from Scripture, is 100% God, 100% man. Yes, sir? What's your phone number? I got a point. Give me your phone number. What is it? 817. Uh, I don't call myself that often. Let's see. 822 uh, 4333. What happens if I dial 822 you contact the help desk and they'll help you with whatever. No, you don't get you, right? <laughs> you don't get me. That's yeah. right. So you're right on that line. Yeah. All truth is either true or false. Exactly. And one thing I did for the uh, high school class, um, I said, what, what website do you go to more often than not? And I think they put like YouTube or uh, Facebook or something like that. And I said, okay. So you got www.facebook.com, okay? And, I mean, we'll use that for an example. Really what that is is something like 70.132.12.3, okay? But how many of you are going to remember this? Okay, so you have something called domain na naming service, which will translate this into this or translate this back to this. Anyway, what happens if I do... Facebook and I put a C instead of a K. Am I going to Facebook? No. No, I'm going to something else. Okay, or or nothing at all, and you'll get that page cannot be displayed or something of that nature. Okay. <coughs> so if you're not right on the money, you're not getting there. Okay. And the same goes for understanding, you know, whether you're calling me or whether you're trying to understand the Lord. You just need to understand 100% God, 100% man, and be careful if you start, you know, playing around there. Okay. Um, let's move on. Um, okay, there's the chart I was talking about. And so you can see um, different groups throughout church history from 1st century all the way to 5th century. And, you know, remember Solomon saying, uh, there's no, nothing new under the sun, okay? 
So anything you see today, and it doesn't matter whether it's Mormon theology, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, viewpoints and all that, there's nothing new. You just, it's just a regurgitation of what's come from the past. And here's a list of those who um, held different views. So now as humiliation, you know, why would the eternal Son of God come to earth, take on a human nature, face temptation, suffer intolerable pain, and experience death? Daniel tells us why. I mean, we know the answer just from our, our walk with the Lord, but um, Daniel explains the why nearly 600 years before he came. He says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Okay? His life's not being cut short because of something he did. It's because of something we did. And uh, it was on our account that he suffered and died, and there's many examples of Christ's humiliation in Scripture. We'll just touch on a few here with the incarnation, the fact that he took on human nature, caused him to experience life in a sinful world and feel the limitations of being a man. Though free from sin, he learned what it was to be under authority, get tired, grow hungry, sweat, and be tempted. And again, you can refer back to Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11. Um, there was something that came to mind as I read that. Well, if it comes back to me, all that's why I should be holding a pen while I'm going through stuff, because I can write it down. Uh, and then, of course, in his suffering, this humiliation, you see his suffering, yet hunger and temptation. Oh, I know what it was. Um, I remember when I was in Bible college, uh, we had a guy come up. His name's Gail Irwin. And he wrote a book called The Jesus Style, and it's a book about ministry based on the style of Jesus. And, uh, and I've seen him a couple times since then. Um, and I didn't, I was, when I went... When I first went to Bible college, I was only a Christian for a couple of years. And so theology and discussing things was really new to me. And he made, when he said, he made this statement, and a bunch of the guys who were in there like their fourth or fifth semester and all that freaked out. And I didn't, I was like, man, leave the guy alone. What's the big deal? He's up there. He's taking his time to teach us and all this. I was pretty laid back, you know. Um, he made this comment. I believe Jesus had a sin nature. Otherwise, the temptation that Christ faced and his humiliation and all that wouldn't have been genuine unless he had a sin nature. And, you know, I didn't know any better. I was like, oh, okay, that's cool, you know. But these guys up front, man, they what are you saying? I mean, you had a room full of people here. You know, what? How dare you say something like that? You show that to me in Scripture. How? That is just blasphemous and all that. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what is happening here, you know? It wasn't until later that I realized that that was blasphemous. How dare him say that? You know, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, but he's got it in print, and I actually emailed. It was about, gosh, I think we we're still living in Burleson that time. I emailed him back, saying, "Hey, you know, I just want to make sure this. I remember years ago this thing happened, and his comment back was that school was so full of mean-spirited Calvinists, and I couldn't believe they attacked me. And, you know, it's like, well." What is it? Do you believe he had a sin nature or not? You know, and then he came back and finally said, well, yes, I don't think it's a true or genuine temptation unless he had the same nature that we did. Well, if that's the case, then you have to say that, well, I guess Adam and Eve's temptation wasn't real either because they didn't have a sin nature. So, I mean, it's just, it's bad theology. Be careful. Um, so you see a suffering, hunger and temptation, betrayal and abandonment. I mean, he felt every bit of that. You know, even though he called Judas, knowing that Judas would betray him, right, he still felt the pain. And that actually David, it's interesting that uh, 
in Acts, when Peter's explaining what's going on, David is called a prophet. And you see where David talks about that, and I don't have it referenced for you, but this psalm that refers to let another one take his place, okay, as you see in Acts. And so even David is talking about the person in that office was going to be, you know, betray him. And it was like a a foreshadow, a prophecy of what would take place with Christ. Uh, But he felt that. To say that he didn't feel that in, in every bit of it, the scourgings and the beatings, the public humiliation and the crucifixion, he felt every bit of it. Now, the fact that the Lord did die at some point is not challenged. There's very few that say, well, he didn't die, okay, um, as far as in our world, in our society today. Uh, because the scriptures declare that all people will die. I mean, Hebrews 9.27, right? I mean, uh, I'm, hold on, I'll get it. For it's pointed unto man to die once in the judgment. Okay, there we go. Um, you know what I need? I need a mind and a uh, photographic memory like Jerry Bates. <laughs> we'll sit in that Bible study, and Ken can testify to this, and, and, and Steve can too. You'll just think of some obscure passage. Gosh, that reminds me of some passage. And you'll start quoting. It goes, oh, yeah, that's over in uh, you know, Ezekiel 27, right around. It goes, I think it's about halfway down the chapter. You know, sure enough, you go there. There it is, you know. And, uh, you know, you, you, it's like, how do you do that? You know, but it's, he says it's a gift of God. I mean, it's just, it's been there even before he was a Christian. He started law school. It's just always been there. Um, now, the question that skeptics pose as to whether he died on the cross is whether he died on the cross or some later date in history, as some Muslim groups claim. I mean, there are some Muslim groups that say, no, actually, he didn't die. Somebody else died in his place. And he went on, married, probably, I don't know, Mary Magdalene or somebody else, and had a family and all that kind of stuff. So... Um, somebody said something? Oh yeah, I heard about that too when I was uh, searching for the truth before I came to Christ. Awesome. And when I was reading about uh, Islam and they were saying like, no, an angel took his place and Jesus didn't die. And it, I was like, okay. You know, it's interesting and I'm trying to think, was it Lauren Beeg? Somebody said they were talking, no, 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 it was uh, Steve Headland at the Cornerstone and was talking to a, he was referring to it during communion, I believe. And if my understanding is that the virgin birth is referred to in the Quran. Mm-hmm. And so the question to the Muslim was, then if he's not, you know, if this didn't all happen, all that, then he's not who he said he was, then why, why the virgin birth? You know, and the Muslim's like, I don't know. You know, <laughs> Muhammad didn't come by virgin birth. Right. You know, so why, if, if Muhammad supersedes Jesus, then... Why, why would God go to all the trouble to have a virgin birth? You know? Uh, anyway, just, just something to think about. And so uh, the Gnostics, uh, in the middle of the paragraph, believe that he only appeared as a human, so he did not really taste death, but the Bible is clear that Christ suffered and died on the cross. The soldiers did not have to break his legs. I mean, think about it. The Roman <coughs> army, which conquered the known world, doesn't know when somebody's dead, okay? I mean, they know how to put someone to death. And the fact they did not have to break his legs tells you that they knew he was dead already. Because that's the way you sped up. If, if someone's being crucified, it's a long process. Torturous, terrible process. But if you want to speed it up, you break the guy's legs. Because then he can't exhale. You know, he just kind of suffocates. Just not being able to, you know, breathe. So, um, and the fact that John records. I mean, talk about scripture being very clear, very precise. Blood and water flowed from his side a clear sign that he's dead, because after death, the tissues and the fluids in the tissues separate. 
So, um, anyway. Now the resurrection, and we'll go over this uh, real quickly because you have, um, it's pretty well defined what's here. But there's all kinds of theories that try to deny the resurrection. But I'll tell you right now, the resurrection is the pivot upon which all Christianity stands or falls. I mean, it's the balance out there, okay? And if you don't believe it, you're off balance and there's, there's, there's no recovery. Um, without the physical bodily resurrection of Christ, all of our faith is in vain. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes not only talking about our, our faith is in vain. I mean, why? Because we're still in our sins. But there's another sin we're committing. What is it? We're bearing false witness because we're telling people that he resurrected from the dead, right? So if the resurrection didn't happen, we're, I mean, our faith is futile, as Paul says, and we're idiots. We should be pitied, he says. So it's one of the greatest testimonies of Christian faith. At the same time, it's one of the most hotly debated issues that skeptics try to dismiss. Uh, for you see, if the resurrection occurred, then everything else Christ said would be true and should be believed. Why? Because who else is resurrected from the dead, right? I mean, who else has in history other than Lazarus and, you know, and the guy that Paul, uh, you know, uh, God used to, as you fell out of the window, can't think of the, guy, the kid's name, might not even be given, but nonetheless. Uh, another, but that's not them resurrecting themselves. Someone prayed for them, laid hands, or did something, uh, or spoke something, God's word, and they came back to life. Christ raised himself from the dead. Now, here's some, there's some theories out there, like the swoon theory. It's more like he fainted. He didn't really die. He just kind of fainted. But again, it gets back to the question. The Roman army, who, you know, who put him there, knew when a person was dead. They didn't have to break his legs, okay, clearly in blood and water and so on. Um, there's another argument that says, well, the disciples and the followers lied. Well, we already touched on that. If you build your faith of, of righteousness and goodness and holiness and it starts from a lie, does that make sense? It's not going to happen. Okay? Um, and also, as Paul references in, in 1 Corinthians 15, there were over 500 witnesses. And Peter testifies in his epistles that, I saw these things. So, what's the best testimony in a court of law. When you say, I saw him do it. I saw that guy. And he was wearing this shirt. He had this tattoo. Eyewitness accounts. Right? Um, some say he went to the wrong tomb. Right? Uh, I mean, come on. I mean, these guys are going to know where the tomb of Joseph Arimathea is. Plus, it was close to the crucifixion. The place of the crucifixion. Um, and the fact that it, it's one thing to say one at worst, maybe two people might mistake which tomb. Gosh, they all look the same. It's all carved out of rock, and that looks like that one, all that. It's another same thing to say 20, 30, 40, 50 people, okay, or 500 for that matter, right? All, oops, I guess we went to the wrong place, I guess you know? Soldiers went to the wrong place, too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, or that they hallucinated. Uh, that those closest to Jesus, just, they just hallucinated. Again, you got the vast numbers. I mean, you can't, it's one thing to, for one person to hallucinate, maybe two, okay, if the conditions are right, maybe you get a, a room really hot, they're dehydrated, uh, they're tired, had no sleep, uh, that's you, um, and so on. But to have that many people hallucinate all at the same time? You never, ever hallucinate the same thing. Exactly, that's a good point. Never hallucinate the same thing, that's right. Um, and then some say it was a ghost or spirit. 
Um, and that's kind of, now it's interesting, look what I say there. Uh, some say it was just a spirit that they saw. The Jehovah's Witnesses make that claim too, okay? At least they did. Now I haven't looked and researched as far as, you know, uh, is it actually now written in their theology that it was actual physical resurrection, but the last guy that I spoke to that came to my door said he did rise bodily. I'm like, can you write that and sign your name please? You know. <laughs> Um, because that was not their theology before. Okay? Now, why is the resurrection important? Again, our faith becomes meaningful. Um, evidence of an accepted sacrifice by the Father. Uh, it's a testimony to our own future resurrection. And again, referencing uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And again, it's, it's evidence that Christ was who he said he was. Um, and that all that he taught was truth. And, you know, and probably, you know, historically one of the, the most powerful arguments there is that the apostles, again, gave up their lives for what they saw, okay? They, they suffered martyrdom, severe martyrdom, for what they saw. Um, we got about 20 minutes, actually this is kind of short, so we, I'll, I'll kind of read through it real quick, and then what we can do is we can talk about this during the Q&A period, and you guys can stay as long as you want. Um, so let's try to we'll try to hurry through. Does anybody need a break real quick? Are y'all good? Should you just blast through or you want two minutes? Blast through. All right. Okay, so we finished resurrection. Now we're looking at the problem of evil. And here's where the skeptics come in and you know try to thwart your religion or your belief system and make you feel stupid. Uh, a person typically takes one of three views on the subject of evil. Evil either believes that evil exists, such as Christians and most theists. Uh, theists being those who believe in God. Uh, they deny that evil exists, such as the Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy. Incidentally, Christian science kind of like grape nuts. You know, they're not grapes, they're not nuts, not Christian, it's not science. Okay, just something, something to keep in mind. My dad was raised Christian science, um, but I can tell you about that another time, something interesting about that. Um, but that's, that's pretty much easily dismissed with simple Bible reading. Okay, or they deny God's existence because evil exists such as, uh, uh, they deny God's existence because evil exists. Okay, they say, well, if evil exists, then there must not be a God because, and again, the argument um, goes like this, and it, it's, it's kind of like the loaded question. Remember Groucho Marx's question, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? I mean, no matter how you answer it, you, you lose, right? Well, it goes like this. If God is good, then why does he allow evil? If God is all-powerful, then why does he not stop it? Uh, he must either be good, but unable to stop it, or omnipotent and unwilling to stop it. Which is it? And so, th when the when the question is posed that way, it leaves it's, it's, it's the Groucho Marx thing. I mean, you, either way you go, you're like, well, you know. But that's that's a a straw man. We'll see here in a minute. 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume, uh, Ken referred to him earlier, said. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is, Im he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Male I can say it. Somebody say it for me. Malevolent. There we go. Uh, is he both able and willing, which then is evil? Such attacks are at the very core of our faith, namely at the character and nature of God, but there are some solutions that you can use to answer them. 
uh, one, definition of evil. Although there are many definitions of evil in the various religions and philosophies, a careful review will show that the Christian worldview is the only one that makes any real sense out of it. Clearly it does exist, but at the same time it is not a rock or other object. Uh, the Christian worldview supports the idea that evil is the lack of something good, a lack of something that should be present in the first place. And that comes from that little book back there by Norman Geiser called Living Loud. And I use that as a supplemental book to my, the last time I taught the Defending Your Faith class for the high schoolers. And that's a great book, not only for your own uh, uh, faith and just for encouragement, but if you know high schoolers or have school of high school age, it's very readable, very, very simple, and has a Q&A type thing where they can read and then answer the questions and all that and, and grow in their own faith. So I recommend that. And no, I don't own stock and regal books or whatever, or whoever made it. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so some examples from nature of, of what you would call evil. You got tsunamis, you got earthquakes, you got weeds, you got rust in the car, uh, death, and actually some of these apply to the second law of thermodynamics as well. You know, things becoming more chaotic and, and wearing down. Uh, examples from humanity, murder, envy, strife, theft. But what is the origin of evil? Where did, where did evil come from? I mean, because some might argue that, well, God created all things, didn't he? Well, then isn't evil something? Yeah. So did God create evil? Well, we'll get to that point. Um, I mean, evil's not a thing. It's the lack of something. Okay, so it's not, like I said, it's not a rock or something like that. So you would say, no, God did not create evil. Um, but if God didn't create it, then where did it come from? Well, one view. I'm sorry? It evolved. <laughs> from nothing. It created itself, right? There you go. Uh, one, we got Satan. And from Scripture, we find that the first to cause evil was Satan. Okay, and I give you some references there for Isaiah and Ezekiel. However, since a skeptic would question even Satan's existence, it would be difficult to approach it from that perspective. Okay, you can't just say, well, Satan did it. Well, they would, who's Satan? I mean, we don't even believe your Bible, so what are you talking about? Um, so to su suffice it to say, biblically speaking, Satan brought evil into existence, and Jesus said he was a murderer and liar from the beginning in John 8:44. Now what about man? We're told in Genesis 1.31, it states that everything God made was good. If that were the case, one might argue then, how could man cause evil as he was created by God? God created man with the capacity to love him or to not, to obey him or not. This ability within man is called free will. So just as you had said, okay, uh, right? Okay. Um, that uh, God gave us the opportunity or the, the possibility of evil, but it comes from free will. Initially with the free will of Satan, right? He can either worship and honor God, okay, the way he was created to, or he can go do his own thing and try to be his own God and be worshiped and so on. Uh, same thing for Adam. He can either obey God, okay, and take part in the garden and avoid the tree, uh, or he can disobey God. Um, you know, I mean, God didn't make robots. You know, he made free moral agents who, you know, out of his love, had the ability or choice to love him back. Free will is what makes our love for him meaningful, and Satan did not cause man's sin. He was just a contributor. Because you might say, well, actually, Satan, you know, well, remember Eve tried to get, get away with that one? Well, Lord, it's the serpent you made, right? And then Adam said, Lord, it's the woman you made. And in a way, they're trying to blame God for it. Uh, but ultimately, looking back toward, toward Satan, 
Satan didn't cause man's sin. He was a contributor to it. He didn't cause it. We you caused our sin. The devil made me do it. You cannot say the devil made me do it. Exactly. Um, so, uh, and then nature. You know, nature itself did not cause or create evil. It was subjected to it out of judgment on man for his sins. And you see that in Romans 8. And it will be delivered from, from it one day. So when you see things like tsunamis and earthquakes and all that, I mean, that's just creation, you know, responding or acting out of, of you, know, uh, you know, the fact that they've been subjected to our sin, okay? Um, it's, it, I mean, you think about it. Ultimately, you go back, earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, and all that. Whose fault are they? They're our fault. Because, you know, when, when we were cursed... What also was cursed? The land. the land, the ground. I mean, everything else was, okay, according to Romans 8. And, you know, it's interesting that Paul says that, they, that creation earnestly is waiting, groans and waiting, please. You know, it's almost like they're crying out to God somehow. I don't know how that works out. I mean, I don't know if a tree has a soul. I don't think it does. But, uh, you know, it's like, but everything's just waiting. It's, you know, whether it's waiting... Uh, by its own desires, or whether it's waiting just passively, meaning that it's just it's there until God does something with it. Uh, either case, it's it's groaning and crying out and waiting. So, um, if evil is not good, then why is it still around? Uh, why does God not simply eradicate it along with any other poss and the possibility of its return? Skeptics again will make the argument that God does not exist because a good, all-powerful God will not allow it to remain. The Christian worldview supports the idea that God is omnipotent and he is omnibenevolent, you know, totally good, and that he has a reason for evil's existence and temporary continuance. It's continuance is temporary. Okay? Now, what good can come from evil? I mean, couldn't you say in a way evil's good? Or it's good to have evil? Think about that for a second. What what possible good can come from evil being around? You see the results of it. You see the consequences of it. So it makes you think, what could I do to avoid those consequences? So it might change your view on how to act in the future. Right. So if you can't measure what's evil, what's good? Exactly. So evil to... And that's the principle of antithesis. The opposite of something. Okay, so... I mean, if there was absolutely no evil and never was, how can you appreciate the good, yes. you see? How can you appreciate God's holiness if there wasn't sin in the world, right? Um, so you have this idea of antithesis, letter A. Uh, you see God's love for us. Uh, to eliminate evil would be to eliminate free will. God does not want a bunch of robots saying, I love you, I love you, you know, and and... Ken's back there going, oh, can a Calvinist really say that? But that's another issue. Okay. Uh, I saw your saw the go like that. All right. Uh, pain and suffering tell us something's wrong. You know, you kind of touched on that. You know, either physically or morally, it, it tells us something's wrong, whether it be that, hey, I got a thorn in my foot, you know, or whether it's, um, uh, you know, I, 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 well, I want to say global warming because I believe there's global warming, I just don't believe we're the cause of it, okay? But let's just say for a minute we agree with Al Gore that we're the cause of it. Well, now you see the outcome of our actions, right? Um, everybody keeps forgetting about the sun. I don't, how can they forget about the sun? Well, the sun. S-U-N, not S-O-N. I'm talking about the sun, right. okay? Because it gets hotter every so, so Yeah, there's a, solar, there's a solar season, 
you know. And guess what they were doing when I was about four years old? Newsweek's article was, are we going into another ice age? Right? Anyway, we'll, we can talk about that another time. So, uh, but it's a 40, 50 year cycle, but for some reason people forget that. And I just, you know, it's kind of like you see in Peter, uh, the day will come where they willfully forget about the flood. You know, people forget about the fact that God judged the world. And he's going to do it again, not through a flood, but through his, you know, the Lord coming back. And they willfully, which is kind of like that idea in Romans, we talked about suppressing the truth, you know, stepping out the truth and, and are willfully uh, not going, not believing that. And I remember my pastor in California where I first got saved, he said, it's amazing what people will believe when they refuse to believe the truth. And when they willfully reject the truth, it's amazing what they'll believe. Um, just because one may not know the reason for evil's existence or continuance is not a valid argument that God has no purpose for it. True, he could have created the world where evil could not exist, but out of his love for us, he gave us the capacity to either love him or rebel against him. Um, now, the removal of evil, now, is this concept of the already and not yet. Okay, we already know that Jesus overcame all evil and has secured our salvation. You see in the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, you know, those whom he foreknew, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also, you know, and I'm saying it totally out of whack, but nonetheless, you know, uh, in the end, he says glorified. Well, I don't know, the last time I looked in the mirror, I wasn't glorified, okay? At least I, didn't, at least I can't see it, you know? But the point is, in Paul, writing past tense, it's already been secured for us through Jesus, okay? Um, so you have the already, it has been done. He has overcome evil. He has overcome Satan and so on. But it's not going to be removed until the end. You see that in Revelation 20 and 21, chapters 20 and 21. One day evil will be removed, and even the creation cannot wait. Again, that's where Romans talks about the, uh, them groaning, creation groaning. But this may open up a Pandora's box. For if we no longer have the ability to choose to sin, and I'm talking about in the New Jerusalem and so on, which we can talk about that after we have any questions, whether that's a real place or is it a metaphor for the church, that's another issue. Um, but if we no longer have the ability to choose to sin, or if, we, if there is no sin in the New Jerusalem, do we still have free will in heaven? Do they have free will? So if we're glorified and we're with, you know, with the Lord and we're in heaven, do we have free will? And if we have free will, do we have the ability to sin? And yet the Bible tells us there's no... Uh, no more sin, no more tear, no more crying, no more evil whatsoever. All that's outside. It's gone. Okay, but for us, if we have free will, are we going to be able to sin? We'll t talk about that later. Um, question for you: Do bad things happen to good people? As Rabbi Harold Kushner espouses, yes. can anybody here name me one good person in the world? <laughs> Right, Romans 3. There are, that's kind of a trick question, huh? Yeah, yeah, there's no one good, no not one. Um, and now real quickly, uh, and we'll, we'll just buzz right through this. Uh, what about those who have never heard? Okay, and you need to understand this question, it, it's, I don't know if you can call it an apologetics question, really, because it's as far as defending the faith, I mean, maybe you can, you can you know, see it that way. Because um, it's really not a question, you see in A there, it's not a question of whether the Bible's true or not, okay? Because the idea of what happens to people after they die is more of an interpretive deal rather than just whether, you know, what we believe is true. Um, 
nine times out of ten, somebody asking that question about the poor innocent native in Africa uh, or South America or wherever else, you, you really think they're concerned for that guy? What do you think? What do you think is really going on when someone? Because I've had someone say that to me when I try to share the gospel, go street witnessing at the beach in California. You know, I says, look, what about those who've never heard the gospel? What's God going to do with them? Is he fair? Is he just? I mean, what's going to happen to them? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. exactly what they're doing. They're looking for a reason not to believe. Okay. And my response to that, I, I just say, well, I, if you're really worried about them, then let's get you saved and you can go tell them. You know. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, and it, that actually takes us to letter C, where it says, his thought or her thoughts on the situation do not relieve them of the fact that they themselves are responsible. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, they, they're still responsible. They still have sinned. The question could, have, could be turned around the inquirer asking them, what about you who have heard? Think about that. You know what? You're, you're telling me you're worried about that guy, but right now you're still responsible. What about you? You've heard the truth. What are you going to do with it? You know, so not you. I know you're saved. I'm just, you know. Um, now some basic principles. You know, throughout Scripture we see God's very nature prevents him from sinning or acting unjustly. Those who hear uh, were never left out in the dark. God has provided some measure of light, what's called natural revelation. You see that in those, you know, nature, conscious, awareness, times and boundaries and acts, material goodness. You know, he reigns in the just and the unjust and so on. Uh, those who respond positively to the amount of light or understanding will be given uh, more, okay, by God's grace. And you can kind of just see the procedure, how it works. He illumines every person through natural revelation. Jesus is still the only way to be saved. The Father will draw or woo the individual to his Son. And those, and I left out an E on the those, those who believe are saved, John 3, 16. Give you some examples here where there's been some, you know, the Lord stepped out and did something pretty cool. Cornelius, Rahab, Naaman, the Ninevites of all people. Remember, I mean, that even Jonah was upset about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the wise men. Uh, who are probably descendants of those who sat under Daniel in Babylon or that, er- that period. Um, I put a reference in here on a book I read years ago called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. And in there, he has uh, stories where he's gone and interviewed missionaries who went on the mission field uh, in a certain area for the first time, hitting a certain area. And those people had some kind of concept of Jesus, even though they have no Bible. No one, they can't point to anybody who share, came and shared that with their tribe. Okay. But somehow they had a concept of the Son of God. How does that happen? Okay. Um, so the Lord can, you know, I mean, he typically uses the foolishness of preaching, right? Okay, but sometimes he can do something a little bit different. Um, and we've had testimonies at church where Muslims that have had dreams of Isa, you know, and the Lord, of Jesus. Um, I mean, incredible. But great book. I recommend that reading. Um, those who have never heard condemn themselves by rejecting the light they received. This is due to not keeping their own moral standards. And Kim, Kim kind of talked on the moral argument for God's existence. But you have here, they, they reject the external revelation. They reject the internal revelation. And that's what brings the condemnation because now they're going to be judged for their works, right? Because God has written on man's heart. Whether you have this, you know, and Romans tells you this, whether you're a Jew and you get the scriptures, or whether you're a Gentile and you have. God's law written on your heart, you're equally uh, condemned, okay? Um, And then punishment will be proportional to uh, light or understanding uh, and the response to that information. 
Um, and then, of course, those who have her, they condemn themselves. So I heard, um, interesting, kind of, kind of in this area, um, R.C. Sproul, uh, he's a theologian, he's on the radio, and in fact, he's got a, I got a, a, a apologetics book back there by him. Um, he said that those, obviously, who reject the gospel, they're rejecting Christ, right? What about those who never hear and reject? They're rejecting the Father, okay, and his testimony through creation. And so, and his testimony of the law being written on his hearts. And it's not, he's not trying to parse the Trinity or anything like that, but just trying to, you know, what happens to those? How are they responsible? Well, here they're uh, denying the testimony of the Father. Here they're denying the testimony of the Holy Spirit of the Son. Okay. Um, now, I know there's some other questions that are kind of hard, and you'll get these and, and even probably ask them yourself. What about infants? What about those who have been aborted? Uh, the insane are those who are mentally challenged, you know. Only people who are consciously and knowingly rejecting Jesus are held accountable for that rejection, okay. Um, you know, if you read in Revelation 13, you see the mark of the beast, okay, they know what they're doing. They know they're taking the mark for a particular reason, so they can buy or sell. And that they know that by doing so, they are rejecting the revelation, okay, of God. Um, and so, it's the same thing with uh, you know, it, it, you're not going to have a case in that with the mark of the beast that someone doesn't, doesn't knowingly do it. You know, they, they, know, they know what they're doing. Okay, infants, the aborted, insane, mentally challenged, they don't know, they have no concept, therefore our gracious Lord will take care of them. Now, what about those who live before Christ? Well, salvation is the same way. It's by grace through faith. Okay, and whether it's trusting in Yahweh, okay, or more specifically in the manifest, physical manifestation uh, of the Lord as far as Jesus, okay, the incarnate Son, um, either way, it's still salvation by grace through faith. It always has been, okay? And that the, the works that we do are always out of our love and response to God, not to get Him to love us, right? So that's it in a nutshell. And we finish with one minute to spare. So, um, Thank you guys for coming, and is uh, and we're open for questions. Ken and I are here for however long you need us, and be happy to answer or try to answer any questions you might have. Um, oh, I want to add something just quickly before everybody goes to the restroom or whatever. Um, I just want to touch on uh, one thing Eric was talking about. Um, but my mind is gone. What were the topics? Oh, I need the pointer. You oh, forgot your pointer. Um, evil, the problem of evil. There are two things that Eric said no. with the problem of evil. No, the two things that, that I wanted to add. There was, everything Eric said was exactly the way it should have been said. But there's one thing uh, that you guys need to know when you're dealing with the problem of evil. Most, time, most of the time when you're dealing with the problem of evil, it's not going to come to you in the form of of some atheist attacking God, although that has been one of the primary areas of attack. Most of the time it's going to be somebody you know who's lost a loved one, something like that. Your theological arguments are not going to do any good in that situation. All right, what that person needs is love. So it, it, the worst thing you could do is, well, all things work together for the good, you know, that's, that would be a really bad thing because that's true, but it's not what they need to hear right now. Um, and the other thing is, if you are dealing with an atheist, remember that they have the same question to answer. 
if evil is a privation of good and we understand that things are evil, well, how does the atheist explain evil? Remember we talked about the moral grounding, the moral law that proves God? Well, if there is such a thing as evil, there has to be good. If there is good and evil, there's a moral law. If there is a moral law, there has to be a lawgiver. So if there is evil, there is a God. It works both ways. And that's also important when you're dealing with any sort of a, an argument about ideas. Remember that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're the only one on the hook for your ideas. Somebody comes to you with a worldview that is, you know, there was a big bang and, and nobody caused it. And, and then there was a couple chemicals that got together and out of that spawned life. And there is no God, really. So what's your evidence for that? Or how did you come to that conclusion? Have you, what kind of studies did you do? What do you do with the law of inertia? What do you do with the second law of thermodynamics? I mean, you start getting into that and all of a sudden they're on the hook too. You know, we, we kind of take it on ourselves to go, well, I'm the person of faith, and so I have to defend my faith everywhere I go. Well, they have to defend their faith, too, right? In the, in the marketplace of ideas, everybody comes with an idea. Nobody's there uh, just a blank slate. You know, I, I have no bias in the game. That's Everybody has a bias in the game. And so what we ought to all be doing. In fact, it's interesting. I was back there listening to Eric, and when we first met, um, I'll give you an idea that, I mean, we're both uh, very close friends, and, but we started having this little, this little theology disagreement. It was, it was very amicable. You know, it was just like, hey, we're trying to get to truth. And uh, he's a staunch Calvinist, and I'm staunchly against Calvinism, and so we're just battling out on these really minor little issues, you know, but we're making a big deal out of it. Huh. And what's been cool about it is I think both of us have learned from each other and both of us have evolved in our understanding and our understanding of evolution of of our in our understanding of our theology I mean so if we can do it you guys can do it too when you get out there in the marketplace of ideas remember it's not just your idea that's on the table it's their ideas that are on the table too so that's all I have to say cool All right. Um, we'll take any questions y'all want. If you want to take a break, we can do that too. Feel free to come and go. Yeah, so we're here. All these atheists, are they more mad at themselves or are they mad at God? They don't believe either. No, it'd be an anger toward God. I'd say so, yeah. Then when you were talking about that Lewis thing, most of the time atheists are usually homosexual. Evil. I figured that out a lot. Atheists have become homosexual, so they don't want to believe there's a God because God's going to punish them because they are homosexual. Right, and it's not just homosexual; it's any sin. Right. And and remember that we we all fell in Adam, and because we all fell, we all have a sin nature, and because we all have a sin nature, we all rebel against God until the point when you're saved, and even then, you still have to deal with your sin nature. You still have to keep it in check. That's why Paul says, what then, shall we sin so that grace may increase? By no means. Don't you know that you have died to sin? How can you live in it any longer? Mm -hmm. the, it's implied that these people want to continue sinning. I'm sorry, Steve, what were you saying about C.S. Lewis? Well, you're talking about the problem of evil. C.S. Lewis, that was one of the things that started turning, you know, changing his thinking was, you know, his mother died of cancer. Oh, yeah. And he said, he began to say, well, if there is a God, he's in unjust. And he thought, well, how can I even accuse God of being unjust unless there is a justice? Right, he said, how can I point to a crooked line if there's not already in my mind an idea of what a straight line is? Right. 
fact, uh, C.S. Lewis's um, Mere Christianity, it's on the back there, you can take a look at it. If you have not read that, I recommend it. And it, it really chronicles how he came to faith. I mean, it's not about his conversion, but he just, all those things he deals with were things that God used to bring him to faith. And Last time so. I taught this class, I said it, and I'm going to say it again. If you have not read Mere Christianity, consider yourself poorly educated at this point. That, that book probably, um, I'm not going to stand by every single theological right. point he had, but I will say this, uh, that book, Mere Christianity, ought to be on your bedside table next to your Bible. You ought to know it well enough to quote it. It's an awesome Yeah, book. and a lot of it's transcripts from when he was speaking, so sometimes it's a little bit, you know, it's not as flowing like a regular right. novel or, not, you know, a prose or anything <coughs> like that, but... Uh, you still understand it. It's just sometimes it's a little bit choppy. Reading. Yeah, I, I you start. Really? Yes, I think it's very heavy. And oh my gosh, I love. But I guess I can see that everything he says it comes, it rings like poetry, sort of like A.W. Tozer does. It's he's just he's just an incredible writer. The Narnia file chronicles of Narnia and stuff that was done as well. Yeah, on the the end of the Bible section are all those different questions. Um, I encourage you to go through those. You know, look up what an idiom is. I mean, you know what one is, but then go look for one in the Bible. Go look for a metaphor. Go look for, you know, there's things that we can see, that, especially the Hebrew poetry. And you touched on the poetry a little bit. Um, when you read through the Psalms, the Psalms are written as you go through, and it changes even through within the Psalm in what's called parallelism. Okay, it's, Hebrew, it's a form of Hebrew poetry. We use rhyming poetry, right, in, in English. We rhyme everything, and that's our way of... What they did, would do is they would say something here on this line, and then one form would have the next line being very similar. I mean, just kind of like a, a regurgitation of what you just said, okay, but in different words, all right? Or it's written in such a way that it's the opposite of what he said, or it's written in such a way where it builds upon what he just said. You know, six things the Lord hates, ye eight, nay, seven, you know? Right. And so it builds. And when you start going through the Psalms, looking at it from the standpoint of how they wrote, okay, and the, it, it's pretty powerful. So I just want to make sure don't forget going through those questions and thinking about some of the things that are in the syllabus, the whole syllabus. But um, so anyway. Right. In fact, um, I would also encourage you to hang on to those things and maybe some, some Saturday when you don't have anything to do, go back through there and look at that. And if you have a question uh, that you don't think of today, shoot it to me and Eric. Um, I mean, we're kind of geeks in that respect. We, we dig that stuff, you know. We, I, I mean, I will completely exhaust myself reading to the point where I'm like I am right now, just reading books about church history and Christian apologetics and studying through the scriptures and dealing with a specific. I spent three years now dealing with the nature of man and the nature of God, just, just trying to wrestle with it, you know, and come up with how you explain the Trinity and how you explain the hypostatic union and, and, and what the nature of man really is and what happens to you when you're regenerated. That's how geeky we kind of are. So we actually enjoy those questions if you have some. Uh, I don't know, do we have our, oh, beautiful. Contact us uh, there and uh, we'll try to answer any questions that you have. You complete each other's time. No, let's not go there. You don't complete me. Just say you know. You complete me. <laughs> so any questions about anything we talked about today or anything else? You guys are welcome to go if you'd like, or if you have questions you want to stay. Uh, we'll 
hang around here as long as